0: hey there welcome to the deeper podcast a podcast that's all about how we can love the hell out of this world even when it feels like it's not possible with those small acts of love and courage that create that deeper sense of belonging that invites people into that movement for change i'm reverend sean one of the hosts and i'm here with reverend gretchen hey gretchen hello and we have a little bit of a special episode today because um on Sunday, I refused to write a sermon. Right? that That's what happened.
1: Or you actively chose something else.
0: Yes, that's true. So if you are a Foothills person, you may have uh, come to church on Sunday and experienced us canceling worship to instead engage in a festival of wasted time because that is what our series is all about so we had a lot of fun watching youtube videos going on walks to nowhere in particular playing pickleball making cookies chit-chatting just playing it was a really kind of delightful sunday
1: it was yeah um, you 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 do you miss the um staring at clouds which i think was actually my favorite
0: yeah um, there was like a whole group that was like staring at cars watching the garden grow and like watching cars go by and they were yeah. having an absolutely delightfully relaxed time
1: they really were. And I mean, my observation was actually, I think gardening is like 90% staring at it. And so mm. I thought I was like, you guys are gardening right now, basically. So
0: basically, um, no, I, I think my favorite part of the whole uh, day is we, we introduced it as kind of the sketch at the beginning of the worship service where um, I was refusing to work because I thought it was hip- hypocritical to make us work in a series on leisure and, um, and then as we kind of introduced this idea of this carnival of wasted time, um, all of the kids like ages five to nine started just to go absolutely bananas, like could yeah. not contain themselves, sliding out of their seats, yelling, like screaming. Like it was just this sense of like they dreamed that church would be canceled one day and now they're living through it and it was yeah. just too good.
1: Best day ever. Yeah.
0: So all of that to say is we don't have a message to share with y'all today, but we did want to um, have a conversation about something that's that's going on um, in the world, in this country, and it has some real tangible implications locally, which is the, the state of trans, um, non-binary, and queer rights in the United States right now. And, you know, as as a queer person, I've been noticing how in a lot of my queer and, and trans circles, there's a lot of fear, there's a lot of panic, there's a lot of emergency planning. And in the kind of straighter places in my life, there's a little bit of a, there's definitely a disconnect But there's also sometimes a sense of like, I'm not sure why this is as big a deal as people are saying. And so we just wanted to talk about that and kind of play that out a little bit, because it's really devastating what's happening. And it has implications not only nationally, but also locally in terms of the rhetoric um, and things that are going on in our local um, school board um, elections and our local community.
1: Yeah, you know, I was at um, I was at an organizing meeting yesterday morning, around kind of responding to the changing situation around immigration, and in particular, um, just the the potential of immigrants who had thought they were moving to some states, deciding instead to move to Colorado at that that moment. And, um, and there was an observation made that in particular people had moved to Florida and were realizing they don't want to live in Florida. And I said, can't, I, I think I said, I can't imagine why not. And then I had a moment of thinking, "I I wonder if everyone in this room knows why not. And in that um and i i wanted to i i i that came to mind because i don't i have no idea if they were queer but there's also profoundly anti immigrant laws um happening in florida more than ever there always has been but more than ever and the the environment is increasingly unsafe and the capacity to find any kind of work is decreasing um which is having all kinds of ripple effects that um, DeSantis didn't, I guess anticipate. But you know, I think that the the issue around um, anti-trans laws and the environment and culture we're facing is happening actually in multiple areas and across from multiple marginalized groups. And the question is just how close in proximity are you to those groups? And are you in? Are have those? You know, as we sometimes have said, have those people, have those groups crossed from news to family? And if they, if if you have a if you have a sense of family around queer and trans people, or immigrants, or people who um who cared who have been touched personally around reproductive rights, then these things you're probably more aware. But if not, it's just, like, another news headline in amongst a million challenging, heartbreaking headlines right now.
0: It's And it's so easy, of course, to get overwhelmed by all of the headlines. And, like, I don't want people to feel ashamed that they're, like, not connected in. Because yeah. that's a valid coping mechanism for the realities of our day. For sure. Um And then there are moments where it kind of breaks through. Yesterday, I met a family who just recently moved to Fort Collins from Florida. Because they have four kids, two of them are trans. And they got a letter from the provider of gender affirming care for one of their kids that said, as of this date in the future, which was less than a month, we will not be able to provide you gender affirming care. And they knew what that meant. Like, they knew what that meant for their kid, which is that, that they couldn't be themselves. They they would not have the life that was necessary for them to live. And so they've mo- uprooted their whole family. They were talking to me about uh, the culture shock of moving from Florida to Northern Colorado.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Um. How... Like, they they know it's the right decision, but, like, parents had to liquidate assets to move them here. Yeah. And now they're without jobs and trying to figure it out, trying to find community, trying to, you know, connect their kids into community. All because a governor and a moral panic and a crusade for gender essentialism or gender sameness took root in what is truly truly state-sponsored violence. And that's where these things connect, right? Like people are fleeing Central American countries because of state-sponsored violence. They're coming at our doors because of the violence that our country has wrought in other spaces. Yeah. And so too are these internal refugees who are having to flee because of what our governments are doing. And a lot of the rhetoric right now. So so last year, you know, I'm wearing my Be More Gay shirt, which was something that you 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 came up with, Gretchen, when the don't say gay law was being passed in Florida. And what we saw with DeSantis in Florida is that at the beginning they said you're all being ridiculous. This is just about stopping us talking about sexuality and gender with kindergartners, first graders, second graders, third graders. But now we just saw by executive decree, Santa's expanded it yeah. to all grades is, is actively shutting down is, is working to have control over universities to shut down programs that focus in women's studies, ethnic studies, queer studies, do critical race theory, which is a, you know, (laughs) a fundamental (laughs) pillar of like legal analysis. Even if you don't agree with it, it's still something you should learn as a lawyer trying to understand the world. But they were like, no, no, you're overreacting. This is just for kids. And there's this whole rhetoric on protecting kids. We're protecting kids from this gender affirming care because they might regret it, even though we know the regrets are really low even though we know that the types of gender-affirming care that young kids get is social transitions, is when they reach puberty, maybe puberty blockers, which are reversible. But now we're seeing this creep in Florida. It's estimated that 80% of gender-affirming care for adults we stopped because of the loss, how they're targeting the providers of gender-affirming care, which is primarily nurse practitioners, the way that they're making uh, specific requirements for folks before they're getting gender-affirming care as adults. And so truly what we see is this creep from yeah. this rhetoric of protecting children to this controlling of adults' lives, all in the image of a very narrow and particular version of gender Based in really a right wing ideology of the good old days, that of course never existed.
1: Yeah, and it's I mean it really was. Um, we know it really was never about children. Um, you know, it was about a kind of vision of the future, and children is a good way to start if you wanna if you wanna try to control the future. Um, but you know, I think, um, another thing to lift up and all of that is that it, you know, it, it, uh, in the, in my experience in the past, some of this stuff has had to be coded. Um, you know, it, they've had to uh portray what they're doing as um not really about and being anti-trans or not really being about being um anti-gay. Um and they've become over the last year especially last few years just increasingly emboldened with being straight up about what they're what they're doing and I think that is it's both potentially hopeful for me in that it's less coded people it's harder to deny there is a greater potential to get more folks to resist but it's also it means they have a certain confidence that they can make this happen no matter what they're not afraid of the potential consequences the fact that um ron DeSantis is a legitimate potential candidate for president is um, evidence of that they, they really are not afraid of being very outright about forthright about this as their goal
0: Florida has been given the designation from the du- du- double a- the NAACP as a unsafe place for Black Americans. LGBT organizations have designated Florida as a place to not travel to for trans folks. Like literally providing trans-affirming ha- care for your child can result in protect- child protective services being involved. And your children threatening to take it be taken away from you. Um, but of course it's it's easy to look at the worst case, but they're not far off other states. Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, Tennessee, Kentucky, Arkansas, Oklahoma, Missouri, Kansas, Nebraska, the Dakotas, Montana, Idaho, Utah, Indiana, Iowa are all states that have passed significant anti-trans legislation that affects not only kids, but adults. And I mean, maybe we can kind of tease out, Gretchen, some of the rhetoric that we're seeing around this, because we're also starting to see some of that rhetoric locally. And it's really connected into some of the other um, conversations around critical race theory Um, around uh, social emotional learning in schools, Um, because it's all part of a really coherent right wing attack on public institutions and uh, individual freedoms.
1: Yeah, a couple of things um, came to mind. So first of all, um, I do think it's important that we recognize that there might be particular states that are i mean there are particular states that are more dangerous than others right now but states are as we know not um monolithic and so within a given state there is there remains diversity and that means that both within those states where it is unsafe there are pockets of um allies and I think it's a risk on for people in more progressive states to sort of write off a quote unquote, you know, uh, red state or an unsafe state, and say, okay, well, good, good, they can all just have their weird fascism they all seem to want. Um, we're not remembering that there actually are queer people in every state, um, and then also the other way around, which is. In, quote unquote, safe states, there are unsafe areas and municipalities and the potential for um, these same kinds of moves to happen within our, within any municipality or including any school district or city or county or HOA, you know, I mean, I think we need to not fool ourselves that this isn't happening in our own neighborhoods, even as we're thinking about how we can receive folks who are relocating from the less safe areas. Um, and which I think gets to the second thing that uh, which is your your question around like what is the ultimate end? I think, I mean, kind of what are they at what is the what's behind some of this. And definitely I do think, um, you know, a major move of this. Um, I was just talking to one of my friends that's a high, uh, a school administrator and who's navigating all of this. She's kind of in the school counseling world. She's like, obviously the goal is to dismantle public education, to discredit public education, to make people, stop trusting public education. So therefore they want to stop funding it um, and to cause chaos in public education. And I think we could say the same thing about government in general, that government funded programs, government officials to create a continuing distrust so that we can dismantle those, some of those longstanding particularly entitlement programs.
0: The other part that we're seeing emboldened um, is also challenges between the separations uh, between religion and government you know yeah. Texas uh, it just failed not because it wouldn't have been voted on but because it, they didn't bring it up for a vote in time uh, a law that would put the Protestant Ten Commandments in yeah. every school I saw that. classroom um, yeah
1: it's crazy. I mean, like, and, you know, like, I feel like I've, I have been in this. I'm having, like, deja vu of other times in my life where we've had these these moments of rise of um, sort of uh, Christian nationalism or a claim to make Christianity the, um, the designated religion of the United States, um, particularly in schools. Um, definitely when i was growing up there was a big question around you know prayer and where does prayer belong and the ten commandments have come up all along but you know i think it's a renewal of those old arguments and also i have to say like i do think there's a different kind of flavor now um i Maybe I was too young in the past to see it or I don't have enough of a critical eye on history about it. But I just feel like this is the fascist orientation of this is new.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, A willingness to disregard democracy and to really question democracy as a value in a more uh, explicit way to me feels new.
0: I think that the the I think you're right to say that it's new be, because I think we're seeing a manifestation of kind of this fascist impulse um being expressed on various different levels. Okay. So you have the the overt Christian nationalism which isn't just that like Christianity and American patriotism can exist together, which is kind of the the kind of the mainstay I think that a lot of like white christians have in this in this country of like you know they love their country and they love their faith um but christian nationalism goes to the next step that says that not only is america a country that was founded on christian values all of the declines of it are linked to its uh it's moving away from an explicit christian identity and that um the state should be used as an apparatus to promote christianity mm-hmm. um, explicitly and that's kind of like the most overt but we're seeing more people talking like that which we haven't seen explicitly in places of power um, in the same degree but then even more kind of on this pyramid of fascism the like the biggest growth i think that we're seeing is around the discourse of parental rights Mm -hmm. Um, because what essentially parents are saying in this kind of parental rights movement, which is where Moms for Liberty, um, is coming in is that they're targeting public education. And they're essentially saying, I, as a parent should have the right to control what goes on in the public institution of the school. I should be able to see what the teachers are teaching. And if I don't agree with it, I should be able to protect my students or stop a teacher from doing it and that is a deep intervention into the core purpose of public education which is to create a like is to create a common um is to create the common good of an educated populace and that that common good is is not just um to is is more expansive than the perspective of any one parent like part of the reason that you know germany uh has such an extensive anti fascist education in their schools is because they needed to have a common discourse and narrative around the rise of Nazism and the atonement and the accountability that they had to go through and the anti Nazi curriculum. Mm-hmm. You know, if someone was able to say, you know what, my kid doesn't get to take the anti Nazi class because I think it's a little too harsh and Hitler had some good ideas about the economy. Right, that would defeat the purpose of this process of a public good. Um, And so we see parents inserting themselves in sometimes common sense or things that seem common sense to the average person like, oh, yeah, shouldn't a parent get to decide what their kid learns? Well, shouldn't a parent get to um, know what's going on in the classroom? Shouldn't a parent know what names and pronouns their kid uses at school? And so you, it, it, like, there's this intuitive off the street um, common sense rhetoric that the parental rights are using. But what they're doing is they're targeting public education and they're saying, we get to control what is said. We get to then redact histories that make us feel uncomfortable. We get to stop things like social emotional learning because it's too subjective and we want people want schools to just teach facts. But what are the facts they're teaching? It's their redacted facts, right, about the redacted histories that they want to teach, which are placing a very white nationalist, white supremacist narrative um, in the public schools. You're getting at that top-tier fascist move at a local level under the guise of simple parental responsibility.
1: Except that they don't really want parental rights. They want their oh, yes. parenting rights, right? But because the, the discourse also,
0: is a parental rights one. But right. 100%, yeah.
1: But it is fascinating that their main strategy, parental rights, breaks down when it comes to gender-affirming care. That actually they want the opposite of parental rights when it comes to healthcare. And yes. actually, they don't, even when it, you know, like I would say... You know, for my kids who have uh, two moms and are in a queer family, my parental rights are that they get to see their family represented throughout all of their education, right? So they don't really want my parental rights in that case. No. Um, hey, so I think it is. It is interesting. I just like a little historical footnote. Know you know, whenever people talk about religious freedom and the United States, um, I do think it's good to go back and to remember that the Puritans who came here were not seeking religious freedom for everyone, they were seeking religious freedom for themselves and. I think there is a parallel to that, you know, it is like still our inheritance um, that we are running into religious fundamentalists who do want religious freedom and it's just that they want the, the freedom to practice their religion as the model of a model society. And that it's is a not,
0: theocratic move,
1: right? But it's not. I think sometimes as progressives and as people who believe in, you know, strongly in separation of church and state, we want to make a strong historical argument about what they were seeking.
0: Mm. Yes,
1: but they weren't really the, the what is happening today is actually a lot closer to what the Puritans were after than.
0: Oh, definitely what, what the Puritans thought. were after and even some of the the founding, you know, fathers of the United States in, in while they did create, you know, the non-establishment clause, from my understanding, I actually think that they could not have foreseen the degree of religious pluralism yeah. and diversity that would have ex- that exists now and I think it would have scared them. To, oh, yeah. to see um, people that were non-Christians in positions of power. I think it was almost unthinkable at the time. And so why would you write a law against something that is unthinkable? Um, and so I think it, it it does play at some of the historical um, realities
1: and of, of the kind of DNA. embedded political
0: culture. Yeah, the DNA. Right. Um,
1: yeah, and then, so I think it's good to just, you know, step back and say, okay, and, um, you know, what is it that we are, you know ultimately for in society and you know what is going to allow for a uh the common the common good um because i think we you know there there is something here that is deeply embedded in who we are that we do keep playing out this moral panic and protect the children instinct and um various versions of let we we need our religious freedom to make sure you all follow our religion
0: right and we should always like have that critical lens of uh when we hear we need to protect children we should ask well whose children and from what right these laws are not protecting trans children these these laws are not protecting kids from queer families these laws are not protecting my religious liberty
1: or um it's not protecting the physicians who have been in the business of gender affirming care um, who are now finding themselves um, having to, in some cases, either find a different line of practice or move to a different state or, you know, there's, there's ripple effects um, for this kind of, yeah, just particular privileging of, a certain worldview.
0: And, and um, one of the things that I've heard, though, from some folks is, this is all just smart political calculus. Like, they don't actually uh, hate trans people. They don't actually hate queer people. This is all just, this is like a abortion in the way that it motivates people to go to the polls.
1: Uh, um, do you think that's true?
0: I don't. I, I think that it is... Um, there's an element of political acumen. There's an element of an underground network of right-wing think tanks and ideologues who are passing this sort of legislation around and are firing people up to care about things that they don't totally care about. But I do think there is a core hatred mm. of, of queerness of uh, any sort of d- d- uh, d- uh, stepping outside of very contained gendered norms that is truly upsetting and an affront to the very traditionalist sense and sensibilities of a, of a portion of this country. And they do wish that they could legislate us away because I think it is hatred. I think there is a deep hatred of queer people. Um, and we've seen a lot of progress. This is the snapback from the progress um, and that that, that hatred didn't go away when rights were conferred.
1: Yeah. um, Yeah, I agree. And I also think there is a uh, social pressure component to all of it in that, you know, I think because tribalism is so rampant today, And people are so hungry for social identity and social belonging and connection that if all of your friendship circle, your tribe, is um, starting to talk uh, uh, about the dangers of trans people and gender, um, just the entire expansion of concepts of gender and or critical race theory it's less about whether you actually agree with that than you do about a desire to want to be in your tribe so that I I think I mean there's certainly people who are this is absolutely something they've been <laughs> I mean focus on the family has been focusing on this for their entire existence mm-hmm. Um, there's certainly people who this is their extremely core authentic and they are thrilled with the um progress that this represents and i just think that it's got it gets traction because of um not because of everyone core essentially believes all of these things so no. i and you know, and I, I do think there's a component, of course, that is like big money on the right that sees this and is like, yes, this is our way, our next, our next way to mobilize people because we 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 defeated Roe, so we got to figure out our next thing. Um, but and especially
0: I, when it's connected to like those grievance politics, yeah, um, and like protecting, like the rhetoric of protecting children. Uh, waste wasteful school like government spending in schools ideological radicals in schools it like hits like other core tenants that are already attractive to right-wing conservatives um yeah and, Yeah. and, and and i think that's why you know one of the biggest roles that our community can play is within their social networks is to disrupt this sort of radicalization and, you know, ask, ask questions about what's going on and what people are believing. Um, Cause you know, it, it to de-radicalize someone, you're not going to de-radicalize them by um, yelling at them usually. Um, and usually the people that we have access to are not people that are way down the ideological spectrum from us, but there are a few steps down on either side. Yeah. And so part of the role that we can play is how are we disrupting the uh the, the slide, the slippery slope that people can go pretty quickly if they get into their echo chambers um, and if they're only hearing about the dangers of trans people, the dangers of gender affirming care, the way that teachers are putting litter boxes in schools because kids think they're cats. like the, the, And that's a real story from Fox News. That's a real story. Um,
1: like, um I had an example fact. of that, Sean. Um yeah. I, a, I can't remember a couple weeks ago, um Joseph was that's my son, is on his tick on TikTok and there was a story about um Canada and the quote unquote this, he said, Oh my gosh, in Canada you can go to jail if you use somebody's wrong pronouns. <laughs> and right. I was like, okay, can you just look up what like look up the law? Right. Um and he was like, no mom, it's true. It's true. Mm. And he was really getting upset about it. Um you know, as a 15-year-old that has occasionally like us all of us messes up pronouns, he was suddenly like, wow, this is
0: what an authoritarian overreach.
1: Right, exactly or what where has this whole Gender acceptance gone <laughs> mm-hmm. um, in Canada. Um, anyway, we looked it up together, and it there, um, it was basically a expansion of um, protections of um, human
0: rights codes.
1: Yes, to include gender and gender mm-hmm. diversity and people who are trans. And I mean, he just like other like I just I think it was a perfect example of something that can just pick up traction so easily and add to a narrative so easily. Um, because it is it like it, it the story was framed with a really specific angle in mind. And mm-hmm. I don't, I mean, it is like, it is so easy to get caught in that and to suddenly feel like, you know, the world has shifted so much because we we are in a time of such profound change, and to feel like you don't know where you stand—that I—I really have a lot of empathy for the large majority of people who are trying to navigate through this and who end up caught in misinformation or a framing of things that is a right-wing framing.
0: I try. I try tr- on my better days. I'm able to do that. Um, but on the other days, I feel so like, attuned to just the ways that, you know, queer and trans folks have been having to adapt to societal perceptions for generations without any freedom or sense of safety. And so, like, it's just, it can be hard to be like, oh, yeah, these people who are trying to take away our rights and who don't want to make a place for us in society are doing that because they've been lied to, they've been misinformed, and they've been, like, politically like political actors have been like like lighting fires manipulated them to be doing certain things um when it's like oh no queer people just wanted to like live their lives with a degree of freedom and recognition and that's too much for these folks
1: yeah I, i i think this is why we really need allies to be in the conversation um and that i do think that the there's a degree of trauma that all of this rhetoric um uh in creates in our bodies and a weariness of empathy you know like a f- compassion well, and
0: also like an insularity like I feel myself like um being more like uh holding my queer fo- friends closer yeah uh, gravitating to more queer identity, more queer forward identities you know like that becomes more and more uh strong when you feel like you're uh, such under threat. I want to talk about the, the lawsuit locally.
1: Yeah, let's go back to that. So um right. Earlier I had said that um we need to remember that no state is a monolith and even the safe state safe states are have um are not necessarily completely safe. And we have a very uh explicit example of that happening in our school district right now.
0: Yeah. So we have a, a local activist, a mom who Is suing the school district and the narrative that she is alleging in the federal lawsuit is that her child got invited to a secret gay trans club and after one meeting. uh, That her child was told to like lie to her parents about um, if she was having gender identity questions and that. After this meeting, her child came home and started to disclose that they were having gender dysphoria and were starting to question their gender. Um, and this, the, the accusation in the lawsuit, essentially is that the parental rights of um, of the mom and the the dad to have control over their kids, um, what groups they attend, um, were infringed. But they're also alleging, essentially, that there was an instance of uh, rapid onset gender dysphoria, which is this debunked idea that you can kind of create transness through social contagion. That like when, one, when you introduce the idea of transness um, or gender expansiveness or non-binary identities in an in impressionable youth, that it kind of they all flip over like dominoes. Um, and I'll start to identify this way. And I was talking to a, a trans friend of mine, um, and they said that you know rapid onset gender dysphoria is uh, a condition that parents have and not kids. <laughs> you know, it's like they rapidly under started to understand that their child is having some gender dysphoria, and that creates a degree of shock and challenge in them. But it's not rapid often, most of the time for queer and trans folks it's something that they've been living with but they haven't had language for
1: and i you know, i think that's actually i i really want to i want to spend a second on that and yeah. then i i think that that's one of the most complicated things to try to um describe or even understand even within yourself in mm-hmm. the coming out process because i think that um there can be a moment of recognition that truly puts language and concepts and understanding and um meaning behind feelings that you just true you just didn't have any of those things for before. And mm-hmm. so it's not like it's not like, oh, well, I always felt that I was a different gender, and I always felt that I was um yeah that i had gender dysphoria but i didn't have the word for that that's not actually what that that most people have as a story or many people i shouldn't claim most i just i i know that it's not as the only story there's actually a lot of people's stories that are i always felt like my body didn't didn't wasn't quite right or i didn't feel at home in my body or i knew something was off and i couldn't put my finger on it mm-hmm. or i I, I've i just always but, felt uncomfortable.
0: So, so lifting up the distinction, because I think people might miss it. I think the distinction that you're drawing is between people who have a very clear understanding of what the difference is mm-hmm. versus having an affective, somatic, bodily, or just kind of sense of there being some sort of disconnect or something not completely fitting or not something like like not being uh connected in a euphoric sense maybe to themselves but not having a language or a label or an understanding of why or what it is
1: yeah yeah so that then when those that language and and understanding is offered there is a inner recognition that is sudden onset you know and that I know can be misunderstood and it, but there's so many things that are like that. And you know, if you can just like much more superficial things, just think about like the first time my, that my son saw a ball, you know, he's just like, that was his, he had never understood balls existed before that. He didn't even know that that was a thing, but he was like, uh, basically life was meh he would say now mid life was mid and now it's amazing and that's i just think like that is what it means to be human sometimes you just truly you have something that you don't totally realize but you know it isn't there's something and then you come to see something you discover something and it is a moment of recognition that wake awakens something that was always true you Mm -hmm. just didn't have the words or the understanding for it so i i just think that like that's I, th- I think it's um I don't know. There's just some nuance there. I think it's good to keep leaning into. And I I I say that all of that with some passion because I I really feel connected to it from my own story of coming out. Where I really was like I I I did not have any sense of being queer before I was queer, and um and by that I mean like literally I just just didn't consider it and didn't. But,
0: but then when you look back, you see the ghost yeah. of your queerness yeah, present.
1: Totally. Yeah. But I, but that like, um, and my mom absolutely had the sense that it was because I was hanging out with all the queer people mm-hmm. and in a certain way she was right. Not
0: wrong, but not, right. it it is it a, it's not a causation. It is a correlation.
1: Right. And it was a, um you know, it, it was a rec- self recognition. Yeah. It was something that I saw in them that was true in me and that helped me understand myself. And I think that is what is often happening in coming out processes. I remember my, you know, I had a great therapist around the time that said, you know, remember, like, we don't become ourselves by ourselves. We become ourselves in relationship with others. That's always true. And it, you don't, like, have some sort of innate self that is just, like, individually true about yourself forever it, it, you are in relationship with other people that you're forming them they're forming you and that's not a bad thing that's true about humans
0: and and here's where the, like even the like the next level of challenge comes in when we when we if we want to have this conversation about the realities of queer experience um and take take into account the broad diversity of queer experience queer and trans experience is that there's even another category of folks who have actually felt very comfortable in body and gender identity and only over time did they notice shifts that occurred wow. in their lives um, and that those shifts could be A, just because of their fluidity in their life but it also could have been that the changing categorizations and identities that were evolving in community and in relationship suddenly spawned the potential for the thing that they could step into with euphoria like that sense of like, oh, this is me in a deeper way, even if they didn't experience dysphoria of who they were before. Yeah. But all of that is really complicated to get into, especially when the discourse around queer and LGBTQ rights is very much in a rights and a solid identity space of like this is the thing you are. Um yeah. Back back to the lawsuit though. Yeah. So we have this local activist suing um And it's very clear, you know, she's pulled her kids out of school. She's telling other conservative parents that you need to pull your kids out of school, that the only way to protect your kids is through them going to homeschooling or Christian private schooling, um, because there's no safe place for kids because of the ways that um, the public school system is caught up in into this indoctrination. Um, In some ways, she's kind of said the quiet part out loud. With those comments, right? Um, because that is the attack. The it's an attack on public education. Mm-hmm. It's an attack for our public schools being for the common person, which includes queer people. You know, I was talking to a congregant of ours who's been an educator her whole life, and I said, "You know, why is this important to you?" And and she she said, "Feeling safe at school is everything. If you don't feel safe at school," you can like kiss learning goodbye, right? Yeah. And so yeah. like, that's what they're targeting when they're trying to take away these sorts of spaces and policies that protect queer and trans kids is they're targeting their ability to be safe in these places because they actually don't want anyone to go to these spaces. They want to get school choice. They want to get vouchers. They want to pay for their own schools. They don't want to pay into this common good of a public education system.
1: mm mm-hmm. You know, it's. um, I went to school before Gay Street Alliances, which are not called that anymore. They're called, what is the GSA now?
0: Oh, goodness. I'm not up on all the terms. Gender and Sexuality Alliance?
1: Yeah, I think that's right. Okay. Anyway, none of that existed in the 90s when I was in high school. I also, I mean, I went to a uh, Catholic K eight, so definitely there was no GSA there. Um, but I went to public high school, so um, I say that because I, I my first um real orientation and understanding of some of these questions came out um in college, and then later when I was in training around working with youth in, um, through my ministry formation. Um, and in that process, it has always been, I I have like a very dear friend that worked with, um, homeless queer youth, you know, I've been pretty close in around some of these questions. And in that process, it has always been understood as a practice that, sometimes it is unsafe to come out to your parents. (laughs) Like that is like a bottom line assumption of social workers, counselors, therapists, ministers, that, that kids are navigating what sometimes can be an unsafe environment at home. That's a given. And what I feel like- It's this... a
0: given, not just because it's a feeling that kids have. And I think there's a lot of queer kids that have a feeling it would be unsafe and it turns out to be safe, but it is also a fact because of the amount of kids, trans and queer kids who are kicked out of their homes who ha- or moved into homelessness because of coming out.
1: Right. Uh, yes, that's yes, that's a, a link I meant to make with my friend who works with homeless queer youth is there is a much higher dis- like proportion of kids who are- Queer who are homeless, so um, because of the very real um, risk of coming out at home and your parents finding out, but that does not and and it does not decrease the need for support for those kids. In fact, it actually increases the need for support for the kids. And so when you talk about safety at school part of what they're pushing at is not just safety at school. It is safety at home too, in that by saying that we, that like taking away the option for kids to be able to confidentially attend an LGBTQ support group, you take away the option for them to get support that they they even more need if their home environment is not helpful and I think what I the reason I I kind of do the history lesson of like I um I, I didn't learn this till later is I think that, that we're it's it's still not new as a practice that we offer this as an option to to teenagers
0: well, um, I, I, and there's a piece of this that also is really important to name which is the construction of the idea of a parent because what we're seeing and how these parents think of their kids is essentially a being that they should be able to control in totality right and they should have no space for those relationships with other adults and other kids that isn't mediated controlled and understood by them and of course you know we are the law recognizes that children Um, you know, in Colorado, when you get to like 14, 15 or 16, you start to be able to make medical decisions. Your parents don't, it won't, if they call up your therapist and say, what are you talking about in therapy? They're going to be like, oh, sorry, I can't tell you because the law says that they're becoming an adult. And so we're giving them the authority to make those decisions for themselves, even though they are not, they're still minors. I mean, as a society, we have this understanding that there's a gradation, um, and that there is an ability to have autonomy. But what we're seeing in these sorts of movements is uh, an authoritarian understanding of parenting that um, doesn't allow any degree of freedom for their cho- for children in general. Yes,
1: yeah, and also that like that they're not their own their own real person; that they're not that that a sixteen year old. their own person, you know, I mean, I, I think, you know, I have a 15 year old and a 17 year old. So I think about it, how, you know, every day they are just a little, you know, a couple years from being considered legally an adult. Am I preparing them to be ready to be able to make decisions on their own? Are they ready for that? Are they, you know, how much am I involved in, you know, their, every bit of their lives it's just it's like in terms of if we want to talk about protecting children it is exactly the wrong move to not give our teenagers the capacity to have their own lives
0: and and this connects to something on the larger thing and this is the last thing we're going to say before we wrap up um Stacey Abrams you know the amazing political organizer and politician out of Georgia. Um, had this really beautiful way of talking about the attacks on talking about race and racism uh, and the history of white supremacy in this country in schools. And she said, we want to make students that can be resilient enough that they can look at the past and know that it doesn't define us, but it does influence us. And that we want to have kids to have the fortitude to be able to go forward and live into the vision of the spirit of this country Having looked at the full reality of what has happened, that's strength. That's real strength is for kids to be able to say systemic racism is real. As a white person, I can see how my ancestors played a part of it. But I know as an individual, I can be a part of changing the system. And that that is something that I want to do. I mean, that's strength for us to be able to do that. And what these sorts of diversionary tactics are doing is trying to get us to think that it's weakness.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I think the, I want to say one more thing on the this. Yeah, um, do it on the suit, and that I just my biggest reaction is I am so sad for um, for our school staff, for our teachers, for our counselor, school counselors, for the administrators, for the school board. I'm sad for us as a community. I'm sad for those kids, kids of the mom that, that has the suit and the ripple effects on other kids. I'm just, it makes me really sad because, um, it is founded in truly, um, um, inaccurate and harmful assumptions. And it is leading us in a, you know, in the midst of a world that needs us to be responding to so many truly, critical questions it just leads us to greater fear division and pain and so i just like my biggest reaction is this it just breaks my heart
0: and it um i think if someone comes out to you how you respond is going to chart whether or not they're going to keep you in the loop on their journey or if they're going to discount you and you know our conviction (laughs) is that um we should affirm what people tell us even if we are skeptical because that keeps us involved in the journey and it also then you know raises up some of the work that i've been doing and i've encouraging everyone else to take up is that if you have public officials who have been taking a stand, like our school board, they are, they have a policy that kids can have their chosen name and said at school by their teachers. And they can have pronouns that are different than the ones that are used at home. Those sorts of policies protect kids. And so we should be showing up for those, those political figures and politicians who are making those changes to protect our kids, and we should be thanking them. So, if you are in a community that the school board is doing a, a decent job protecting queer kids, I, I think you should write them a letter, show up at their board meeting, say that to them. It matters because they are getting so much hatred, so much vile rhetoric directed at them right now, and it truly matters to say, "Hey, you're not alone. You're doing this for a reason." Yes. Well, thanks for joining me, Gretchen.
1: Yeah, thank you. Thanks for the conversation.